One of the things I find amusing about myself is that I have no problem making people feel uncomfortable. This came about, you may not have guessed, but I'll tell you. As a child, I was a pretty awkward kid. Um, I had my own interests, my own preferences, and I had my own sense of humor. And I realized that people were missing out because they didn't get half of my jokes. And they still don't, and that's all right, because I find myself more often than not laughing quietly to myself, enjoying how humorous I am, even when people are not laughing with me. And it's also made me somewhat of an anomaly in that, unfortunately, I've not been blessed with such an insecurity that I care a whole lot about what people think. This can be both a good thing. Some of you are thinking, well, that sounds amazing. And it can also be a detriment. The problem in this kind of an anomaly is I'm okay with making people feel uncomfortable. I'm okay with pushing people's boundaries and, and causing a, a little bit of strife because, honestly, I think friction is good for us because it either causes us to grow or fall apart. And if we fall apart, what will we even doing in the uncomfortable area anyway. Here's a problem. The Bible, when we actually look at it, makes us feel very uncomfortable. God's Word revealed to His people when we actually spend time reading it forces us to face some uncomfortable truths. God's love letter to His chosen people teaches them an uncomfortable lesson. And it forces us to live in an uncomfortable reality. We have two options. And this is the way people normally react to being pushed into their uncomfort zone. We can either ignore it and pretend that it's not happening and go about our lives deceiving ourselves and and not acknowledging it, not conforming to God's Word, not responding. Or we can find ourselves resolved and committed to continue to live in the uncomfortable realities that God's Word gives us. This morning, we will turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll pick up in this chapter in Ezra's prayer. He's been instructed by the Levites and by the leaders of Israel to stand up and to glorify the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. This is his exhortation. This is his marching orders. He's praying this prayer and we find that the way that he glorifies God is through confession. The way to glorify God is by simply acknowledging what it, the truth is. And his confession is not one necessarily purely of the sins of Israel and everything that's led up to this point in history, but his confession is a confession of who God is. What is the truth about God? God, you created everything. You're a good God. You didn't mess up when you created everything. You created a perfect everything. We messed it up. You fixed it. You made a promise to us through our father Abraham. You've blessed us through this promise. We disobeyed you and we ended up in Egypt and bonded in slavery. And you finished your promise by delivering us from that. You brought us out of Israel and provided for us in the wilderness. Because God, you're still a good God. 
We pick up this morning as he looks at these this at this third section of this prayer, and we still see him making confession. Each time we've looked at this, we've seen kind of a reaction or a, a give and take response between here's what God takes and this is how he regenerates it. Because the theme of Nehemiah isn't just reconstruction, but it's regeneration. It's pointing towards what God is doing in the church today, in the regenerate lives of those to who he calls unto himself. What we find is God doesn't just care about rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem. We use the analogy that God is healing from the outside, and now that the walls are established, His attention is on the internal lives of His chosen people. Now, if you're with me this morning, if you're ready for this sermon, let me tell you why this is important. The church looks a lot like Israel. God's community of believers behave a lot like Israel. This morning in our discussion, I made a comment, just an observation. 500 years ago, most families did not have a Bible in their home. The reality is, is that if we put finances in today's terms, most likely owning a family Bible was the equivalent of buying a car in today's market. People that had a Bible, they, they had room to do that. It was a luxury. And still 500 years ago today, when we read the, the framers of our Constitution, we, 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 read, we read from historical figures, we find that there are more allusions to the Bible. These people were incredibly biblically literate, not just because they were read or well-read, but because they cared about what the Bible said, even though they most likely didn't have a copy of their own. And even if they did, they may not have been literate enough to read it for themselves. Today... Raise your hand if you're missing a Bible. Look around. Not one person raised their hand. And do you know what I would have done if someone did raise their hand? I have a box in the back with 500 Bibles that I would give them. How many of you read your Bibles? Don't raise your hands. I don't want to know. I would be too discouraged to ask that question honestly. How many of you spent time reading your Bible before you came to church this morning? How many of you cracked the gold leaf yesterday? How many of you didn't have to look for your Bible this morning because it was sitting in the pew ready for you where you left it last week? We make a confession that God's word is inspired, spoken by him, truthful, that it means something, that it's important, that it's our regulation for living life for God, for knowing him, for having a relationship with him. What kind of a confession is that when our actions directly contradict what we are saying? The church looks a lot like Israel. We can build walls. 
We can remodel our education building. None of it matters if there's not something happening on the inside. Why does it matter that you hear this sermon this morning? Because God's means of regeneration have not changed. He promises through the preaching of his word that it will not return void. He promises in the confession of our heart that he will comfort us. Let's pray before we read. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the promises that you make about it. Lord, this morning as we come to you concerned about church members and loved ones, God, for the bereavement of some, for the comfort of others, for the healing of those, Lord, we celebrate those who are coming back with us, the faces that are returning, and we pray for those that are still away. Lord, we pray that you be with them and bless them this morning. And Lord, we ask that as we turn to your word that you would give us a heart of understanding, that you would give us eyes to behold the amazing truths found in your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hopefully your Bibles are already turned to Nehemiah chapter 9, but if not, would you turn there with me? I'll read from verse 26 to verse 31, and I'll ask you to follow along as I read out loud. The Bible says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet... When they turned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Amen. It's important before we enter into the uncomfortable that we remember the message last week. And if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go and listen to that on our church podcast. You can find it on our church website. Um, as we spent time looking at the mercies of God and what a promise this is. Because where we pick up this morning is exactly where I said we were going to go in an uncomfortable truth. So far, Ezra's confession has been focused around acknowledging the truth about who God is and what He's done. But now, he says that we were disobedient. 
We rebelled against you. We cast your laws behind our backs. We killed your prophets. We turned our backs against you. We created great blasphemies. And all of this in verse 26. The confession that the church must make and that God's chosen people must make is that it was never at any point, and I don't know why this is so troubling. I I cannot wrap my head around why this is so difficult for people to get their heads around. And when I say that, I promise I'm not just speaking to you, I'm speaking to myself. We know that we come to God by an act of grace, that He's brought us into a relationship with Him, that it's His love that perseveres us in this relationship. Why is it so easy for us to forget that and convince ourselves that the reason we don't have this ongoing relationship with God is, well, because I was basically good before I came to God and He just polished me up. Some of you are saying, I don't have that kind of a perspective, Brother Derek. That's not how I think about myself. That's not the way that I go about my life. I don't think God just polished me up. But that's the way that we act. That's the way that we view the world around us. When I see someone truly depraved, or if I think just for a minute in a hypothetical, I want you to imagine the mother who's drug addicted, who abuses her children because she can't get herself off of drugs. Do you have any grace in your heart towards her? Do you want to condemn her? I do. You've separated yourself from the depravity of man so much that you forgot what God has actually saved you from. Here's the real confession. I am the worst of the worst. Paul called himself the least of all. Or the littlest. I'm the worst of the worst. Sitting in that truth is uncomfortable, but this is exactly where Ezra leads himself. And what was his exhortation, we ask? Why is he bringing this up? Why is he making things so uncomfortable? He was talking about how great God is and how great His mercy is. Why can't we just stop there and talk about how great and wonderful God's mercies are? I mean, I love talking about God's mercies. I recommended this morning, go back and listen to last week's sermon because I'm about to beat you over the head with God's word. And it's an uncomfortable truth. And you need to know God's mercy if you're actually going to hear it. But this morning, that's not what we're talking about because that's not what God's word is talking about. Here's this great and wonderful truth. Ezra, you're doing great. God's being glorified. I'm awful. I'm disobedient against you. I rebel against you. Not only that, but you give me your law, and what do I do with it? I chunk it in the dumpster and keep going my way. You're coming up behind me, and you're tapping me on the shoulder, and I'm acting like I can't see you there, that I don't don't know that you're right behind me. I'm casting you behind my back. And if you needed a little bit of encouragement, the prophets are an act of God's mercy. That God would give people God's word, that he would place conviction in their heart, that he would lead people to go and do things that he has called them to. This is an act of God's mercy. And so he raises up prophets like Elijah. He raises up prophets like Jeremiah. He raises up prophets like Ezra so that they can come to the people and they can say, listen, you've got to turn back to God. But what is the nature of the worst of the worst? What is the nature of everyone, not just outside of the church, but inside of the church that does not have a true heart for God? 
Stop talking. Isn't that what everyone wants to say this morning? As we enter into the uncomfortable truth, stop talking. Get back to the mercy. Life's uncomfortable. We're going through a lot. We need a word of encouragement. Unless you know what you need to be encouraged from, it will not carry any weight. Why is it that the uncomfortable truth is so difficult to face? Dan Allender wrote in Leading with a Limp, a community of good characters must tell honest and compelling stories in order to become a transformative community. Unfortunately, what most organizations offer instead of a good stories is spin. Stories have the power to shape character. Spin is a story without soul or suffering. A story which consequently creates hypocrisy. Spin is of the devil. We live in a culture today that promotes diplomacy. Even in the church, we're careful with our words. I don't want to offend anyone. And that's loving. I commend all of you for being careful not to offend people. But I also condemn you for being so careful with your words that you don't speak up when you should. I condemn you for being so insecure about your biblical illiteracy that you do not try to negotiate God's word into a right and proper understanding. Yes, be careful. Yes, be loving. But why are you so addicted to painting a good picture? We're a people of grace, after all. If there's anywhere you could mess up, shouldn't it be the church? I mean, it just makes sense to me. I don't have all the right answers. I'm sure that I'm going to make mistakes. But do you know what will not help me get anywhere at any time? If I just close the Bible up and I never read it. Do you think I'm going to get closer to God like this? Hey, I really understand this, y'all. Looking at this Bible, there's 66 books in here. These are special pages. They're super thin. Man, it'd take forever to read this, wouldn't it? How long do you think it would take to read the whole Bible? If you spent five minutes a day, you'd get through it in an entire year. Five minutes a day. That means if you spent 20 minutes a day, which is like an average reading time, you'd read it four times a year. 20 minutes a day. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I sit on the toilet longer than that. I should be reading the Bible five times a year. You think I'm going to become a better Christian by just being intimidated by it? Hey, I also understand there's another insecurity that I've struggled with too. People, whenever they talk about the Bible, they use all these words, and and I'm guilty of it too, aren't I? You've heard me say soteriology and eschatology and pneumology and Christology and theology proper. Well, let's talk about the atonement. What are we talking about? Are we talking about Christus Victor Atonement, a penal substitution atonement? This is where you say, stop talking. 
That's pretty intimidating to go into the Bible and to think, you guys, the Bible's written for everybody. You don't have to know those words to read it. You just have to open it up and let God speak to you and realize that that's how He's speaking to you. Seek Him in His guidance that He would give you a proper understanding and spend your time reading your Bible. Because guess what? You're not going to understand those words, especially if you don't spend time reading what the Bible actually says. And even if you don't know what those words mean, if I start talking to you about the end times, if you spend time in your Bible, you're going to be able to have a proper conversation with me. There's no other way. Well, instead of beating you up about that, because, well, like I said, I'd be afraid to hear the truth. How many of you read the Bible yesterday? Let's talk about this issue of spin. Even in our own salvation stories, we've created a story of spin. I wasn't all that bad when God saved me. When we're fighting with our spouse, and she accuses us of just being mean. I shared with you all this morning my odd personality traits and how that influenced me and developed a, a weird kind of ambivalence towards what other people think. Do you know what my response is when my wife calls me mean in the middle of a disagreement? Internally, it's I don't care, I'm still right. Three, that's what you say out and apparently I say that out loud from time to time too. I walk away thinking to myself, I wasn't really being mean, I was just being honest, and she's just like everyone else in the world who doesn't want to hear the truth. Aren't I putting spin on my own sinfulness so that I don't have to face the truth inside of me? Right or not, aren't I just spinning the story so that I don't have to face the hurt, the suffering? And what am I robbing myself from in doing that? I'm robbing myself from being able to grow in character. What are we doing when we acknowledge total depravity? But we fail to acknowledge it in ourselves. We may say that we rely on God, but we're really robbing ourselves of properly relying on God. All because we lie. I find no more heinous or more frustrating common sin that exists in our world today than the reliance upon telling lies. If I ask someone if I look fat in these pants and they tell me I look good and I actually look fat, is that lie any different than a more heinous kind of lie? We've justified so many lies, but here's the reality. If I ask them that because I feel insecure in those pants and I end up leaving the house or going out and doing whatever we were planning on doing, I still feel insecure in those pants. They didn't help me. They could have told me the truth. It would have been an uncomfortable conversation. We could have gotten through it. They could have told me the truth. Brother Derek, you'd probably feel better if you lost about 35 pounds. Now that's a special friend to tell you that truth. 
I mean, there's still a way around it. They could have said, I don't think those are very flattering on you. I might change. Hey, at some point, though, if I'm not energetic enough, if I'm lethargic and, and all of these different things, I would hope that I have a friend that loves me enough to say, Brother Derek, you'd probably do well to lose 35 pounds. Right? It's going to be uncomfortable. But it's going to make us have a longer friendship. I might even live longer as a result. People are so accustomed to lies that we've even, we've even justified them to some extent that there's some lies that aren't as bad as other lies because I was doing it just to save face, just to put spin on a situation. Or maybe I was just failing to acknowledge you know, the absolute realities of it. I'm not saying we should stand up every morning or every time we come from God and continuously repent of the same sins that He's already forgiven us of, but we should have a right perspective of what our relationship is with God whenever we come to Him. You guys, in my sinfulness, I've confessed of sins, I've been forgiven of sins, and I'm able to move past them without any guilt. To bring them up now, I think, would be dishonoring the forgiveness that God has already given me. But the reality is, is when I look back on those, it encourages me to continuously rely upon God because if I think for one moment that I am not wrestling with the flesh in the same way that has the same nature as the most heinous person that I could think of in this world, I am deceiving myself. I am not reading the Bible in the light, but I'm reading it in darkness. And as a consequence, here's what happens. I read the Bible and I think, man, if the world could just get this part of their act together, everything would come together. Before the Bible shows us anything about the world, it shows you about yourself. And if you rush to applying it to fixing the culture around you or the society that you live in, you're missing the point and you're misapplying it to begin with. I said that first, we face an uncomfortable truth. Second, we face an uncomfortable reality. And that is that God disciplines the people He loves. I think He disciplines churches. Where did I come up with that idea? Did I conjure it up by myself? No, read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. He disciplines churches that are not faithful to Him. He disciplines churches, and that means the people who call themselves Christians but live in hypocrisy by never turning to Him, that continuously try to glorify God by an act of their own strength and own measure, their own volition, instead of being dependent upon God to work through their weakness to glorify Himself because He is the Almighty. God, God's Word in Ezra's account says that God gave the Israelites into the hand of their enemies, that later He abandoned them into where their enemies would have dominion over them. And when the people cried out, this is the uncomfortable reality. When we are broken enough to actually cry out, you are merciful. The uncomfortable reality is it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I don't 
mean this in some sort of grand scheme, national kind of perspective. I mean this in the local church perspective. Until the whole church, every body, every member, every individual comes together united in a broken and contrite spirit like the nation of Israel did in the days of Nehemiah, confesses their sins to God and cries out to Him for mercy, it will get worse. Because this is the unchanging God, and this is the model He has set for us. So long as the church continues to rely upon uh, creative speakers and and good Bible teachers and, and programs and things that are not scriptural, the church will not find its true strength. Not because it's difficult to find, but because... They already know where to go for it, and they're not going. The power of the church does not exist on any ideas that we can come up with by any methods that we could develop. It depends wholly and completely on the Spirit of God working inside of the individual members, contributing to the needs of the church, edifying the saints, that they would be prepared for the mission, living by the faith which is regulated by Scripture and Scripture alone. And until the church is broken for that, it will get worse. So long as you continue to avoid the uncomfortable truth, to not love your brother enough will make this spiritual instead of talking about the 35 pounds that I need to weigh, lose. And if anyone comes up to me after the sermon and tells me it's actually 40 pounds that I need to lose, we will laugh together. And, um, but, but I'm just going to warn you, you probably missed the point of the sermon. Because that was a spiritual illustration. <laughs> Did I hear you say 50? I'm not an auctioneer. I won't keep listening. <laughs> Anyone have 55 going once? No, listen, that was, a, that was a spiritual application. Because if you're sitting back and you're unwilling to tell somebody that you love, that they're not spending enough time in their Bible and it shows in the way that they live their life, you are a part of the problem. It's not enough that you are spiritual or that you care about what God says or that you are faithful or that you are meeting the needs. What God calls us to do is to contribute to the needs of the saints, each member. The role of the pastor is to prepare the saints that they would be able to serve in ministry. My job is to equip you to care for everyone else. It's not your job to support me that I can care for everyone else. My job is to equip you so that you can care for everybody else. This is personal, and we have to make it personal if we're going to live in this uncomfortable reality. If you want to get any step closer to coming to repenting to God, or as Ezra says, crying out to God, we have to take this personally and seriously. We have to realize the role that we play in it. And guys, this is all based in the character that we develop, the Christian character that we embody. Dan Allender again says, character is formed in the midst of hearing and telling the full story, the confession, the good, the bad, and especially the ugly. That part was mine. Back to Dan. He says, since you were 
Since you were there when your story happened, entering it would seem like the easiest thing in the world to do. But actually, nothing is more difficult. The reason is we only know or let ourselves know part of our story. We hold on to either what we wish to remember or what serves us well to recall. And we flee from the parts of our story that most deeply expose and unnerve us. You don't have to do anything to live in an uncomfortable reality. All you have to do is quit blinding yourself. You will benefit from it. The people around you will benefit from it. Those you lead will benefit from it. Those you serve will benefit from it. Last but not least, I've so far talked about an uncomfortable truth and an uncomfortable reality. Let's take something from this. Because when things get uncomfortable, people have a tendency to shut down. An uncomfortable lesson. God is bearing with our pride and our arrogance. Verse 30. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. The God most high. All in all, Lord of heaven, creator of everything, is enduring you. He will not forsake those who he calls, whom he calls. But he will in his righteousness hold each person accountable. I don't want you to misunderstand this. But Christians, when we are reunited in heaven, after the white throne judgment, we will stand together at the mercy seat of Christ. You will be held responsible for every idle word spoken. You will be called to give an account for your faithfulness. Not that any of that will ever save you. But it is a day that we will all be together accountable for our lives. Do not abuse God's mercy. Do not cause him to endure your negligent faithlessness. He has loved you. He has been faithful to his chosen people to call them, to redeem them, to provide for them, and to establish them. Do you love him at all? your actions say that you love him? The Bible gives us the illustration that the church is like the bride of Christ. If your faithfulness as a church to Christ matched in whatever proportion that illustration looks like, the faithfulness of your spouse towards you, 
Would you say that you feel loved? Would you be content in your relationship? Ian Murray in an interview said, worldliness in the church is the number one enemy. One that comes in when we have unspiritual people and we have unspiritual people too often because they are nominal Christians. When we look at the story of Nehemiah, we find nominal chosen people. They lived their lives for a long time in captivity until God finally brought them to a place of brokenness that they were able to call out to God. And when he redeemed them, when he rebuilt the wall, when he brought them together, they spent time together worshiping and confessing the realities about God. They cried out and God blesses them. There's renewal. There's rejuvenation. There's new life. If you spend time reading the Bible, then you know as well as I do, this wonderful picture of the church is not something that we can neglect or something that we can abuse because it's the prettiest picture in the world that God calls imperfect people together into community and establishes a relationship not just individually, but horizontally, that he binds them together as the answer for their own, own need. As a means of grace and compassion towards them, he gives us friends. And in your head, sit back and imagine just for a moment this beautiful picture that God gives us in the Bible. And don't think about all the church hurt that you carry with us, all the memories from past churches or the things that have frustrated you. Don't think about my failings. Please don't let me become a stumbling block to you. Think about the perfect church. Conjure up in your head the relationship that you have with these people, how it lasts, what it looks like, even throughout the week, not just when you meet for worship, but when you meet for lunch and when you meet for coffee. And, oh, there's definitely got to be coffee, and it's good coffee. And say to yourself, the thing that's keeping my church from looking like that is me. Father in heaven, I thank you for your truth. And I thank you for the grace necessary to endure hearing it. God, do not let us leave discouraged, but give us encouragement that it is in you and you alone that you provide us everything that we need to come towards you. And God, I pray that whenever we come broken, that we would have wisdom that would come from you to stay that way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.